0: following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, as I move microphones out of our little cloistered band area, and as my voice echoes on that bare drywall behind me, it's kind of fun to say we are almost done. <laughs> woo! That's right. Remember, if you're new here, woo it means artisan. It's, it's artisan for yeah. uh, We just don't really get too excited verbally around here. <laughs> kind of a quiet bunch. <laughs> Even that was an ironic amen. <laughs> Uh, But as you can see, we're not quite finished. We are almost there, but not quite finished. Um, Our sanctuary expansion, which we um, wanted to have done about 18 months ago, (laughs) Uh, because obviously this time of year the room starts to get very full. Have you noticed it's very full in here? Um, We have probably 30 children who are down at the other end of the building right now, um, not occupying seats in this room. Um, And some new kids who are... uh, for the first time maybe in a while in here for this part of the service, which is a pretty cool thing to do. We, we, um, just by way of brief explanation, we, uh, we really want children of all ages to feel like they are just as much a part of our church community as any adult is. And um, we also like to have families worshiping together as much as possible. And we include the sermon, the hearing and uh, uh, proclamation of the word, as one of the acts of worship, by the way. So for us, it's not just worship together, it means do music together, it means do the whole thing together. And so for, you know, at a a younger age than sometimes happens in churches, we have, you know, nine and ten-year-olds and up in here with us now today, and um, Pastor Jesse has given them some cool little worksheets to to keep track of uh, what's going to happen here, and they'll get to talk about it with their uh, moms and dads and friends on the way home and that kind of thing, and that's pretty cool. But... It's been a very exciting summer, especially the last couple of weeks with, with this sort of, have you noticed how this ramped up in the last couple of weeks? It was like nothing, 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 nothing. Oh, there's actually a room there. It's been very exciting. Uh, but I have to be honest, I am a little bit weary of it. <laughs> actually, that's not honest. If I were being honest, I would have said I am really adjective weary. <laughs> Adverb? I don't know. Um, <clears throat> it's been a lot of work um, Probably twice a day I have a 20 or 30 minute distraction Related to this project um, You know, poor me, whatever That's not really where I'm going with this But um, The point is I, I, I want to change the subject Have you ever been at a party Talking to somebody <laughs> You have been right? <laughs> And you're just like, uh, yes, Battlestar Galactica is really awesome. (laughs) No, Cylon chick is really great. (laughs) Autumn just asks what kind of parties I go to. Well, some people will describe them as nerd storms, I guess. I don't know. Artisan is one big nerd storm. You all, raise your hand if you really don't know what Battle, Battlestar Galactica is. Come on. <laughs> you at least know enough about it to know that it's really boring <laughs> when other people are talking about it. Anyway, you've ever been at a party, whether it's maybe it's sports, right? Oh my goodness, I play on this volleyball team and every week I get there and for five minutes before we go on they talk about their fantasy football teams and it makes me want to pop my eyes out of my skull. It is so boring, I just want to change the subject. Well, we've been talking about our building and talking about our building and talking about our building and talking about our building for for years now <laughs> off and on. And for the past summer, you know, for the summer we've been talking about it pretty much all the time. I am ready to change the subject. This building is about as interesting to me as a fantasy football team populated by Battlestar Galactica Cylons right now. <laughs> I am D-O-N-E done thinking about this, right? And from a kind of uh, pastoral leadership standpoint i want us as a community to be done thinking about us right i want us to be done thinking about our room i want us to be done thinking about our building that's what this series is all about it's time for us to change the subject <laughs> it's time for us to go beyond our walls as much as we love this place as much as this is a strategic ministry decision designed to help us go beyond our walls, it's time for us to start talking about it and getting on with doing it. That's what this series is about. Now, there is a little bit of an irony in this (laughs) because when the leadership team and I uh, and the staff planned this series at our retreat last May, we expected that by the time we got to today, the room would be completed so long ago that it would be like we wouldn't even remember necessarily. Instead, we have the world's biggest visual aid, uh, which will be behind me for our, the remainder of this sermon <laughs> and the series, probably. So anyway, today's topic is the walls we build. We're going to go a little bit metaphorical about walls today. We, we obviously want to get beyond our physical walls, but we as, a, as people, as human beings, we want to get beyond the walls that, that are between us as, as humans, as persons, we want to get beyond the walls uh, that are set up because of cultural differences or socioeconomic differences um, or ethnic and racial differences. Those are the walls that we tend to build up um, and, and sort of in this insidious way, we are culturally kind of conditioned to strengthen this particular type of wall. But we want to break down the walls of division and prejudice that persist in our lives. That's what today is about. And by the way, we will have a whole series in November, just before Advent, on particularly on the topic of racial reconciliation, which I think is going to be a very uh, important and formative month for our church. I'm really looking forward to that. So our main scripture reading today comes from Luke twenty-five. Uh, excuse me, Luke ten, verse twenty-five. It's 25 through 37. Some of you have red Bibles at hand. They're either under your chairs or in the seat pockets in front of you. If you don't and would like one, there's a library cart full of them back there. If you don't own a Bible and would like to own a Bible, you are certainly welcome to take one home with you. And uh, it's our gift to you. And if you're following along in these red Bibles, it's page 844, this reading. Do I see Sophie back there? Would you like to read today, Sophie? All right. Sophie uh, is, is um, one of our artisan older kids, and uh, I was talking earlier about how we want to involve them in the service, and one of the things we're having them do is read Scripture. So I'm going to have you come right up to this microphone here, and um, let me make sure that it's live. I don't know if Todd knows I'm going to do this. Hey, James, can you have Todd uh, unmute this vocal mic for me? And um, I'm going to give you a quick microphone lesson. Okay, you want to be that close to it. Can you do that? <laughs> and we are going to have you read 25 through 37. This section right here. Got it? And you guys can follow along in your Bibles if you like.
1: Hello, Isabel. Okay. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you had given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by a chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when the came, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denaries, gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor of the men who fell into the hands of the robbers, he said? The one who showed him mercy, Jesus said to him. Go and do likewise.
0: right. Thank you very much. (laughs) You even did a good job with Denarii. That's pretty good. Threw you a curveball there, Sophie. <laughs> so this story is, of course, the, the famous teaching of Jesus known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, even if you've never read the Bible, I'm sure you've heard the phrase Good Samaritan. And uh, it, has, it carries with it some kind of meaning for you. But I want to go a little bit deeper into it, and so let's spend a little bit of time thinking about this, this parable, this story that Jesus uses to make a point. And the first thing I want you to notice is, who's, who is Jesus talking to in this story? Somebody shout out who he's talking to. A lawyer. Boy, Jesus is loving. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, lawyer jokes are so cheap. They're so easy. Like, not even fish in a barrel. Um, also, we don't have any lawyers to my knowledge in the room, so I'm not going to get sued for libel or whatever. But um, he's talking to a lawyer. Uh, another translation might say he's talking to an expert in the law. This is important for a couple of reasons, one of which is how Jesus responds to the man's question. He responds to the question by asking him, How do you read the law? Jesus is good at this. He's very good at um, finding out where somebody is and speaking to that person on, on that plane. If Jesus had been asked this question by a fisherman or a seamstress, I don't imagine his answer would have been the same. But he's talking to a lawyer, an expert in the Jewish law. And so he says... In answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? What's your reading of it? Specifically is what he says. Any good Jew probably could have quoted the law, you see, but an expert in the law would be able to interpret it. And Jesus asks the man to interpret what he has found in the Jewish law. One of the things I love about Jesus is how he responds to people right where they are. It's, it's in the story of Scripture, and uh, I think it's also true today that Jesus is here among us and is alive and knows us, knows me, knows you, and um, would, would respond to you, even if you were a lawyer, <laughs> um, just as you need to be responded to. That's really neat. So... The lawyer responds with this two-part response about what he sees in the Jewish law. And the first half of it is about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And uh, we talked about that a few weeks ago in one of our series that that we were doing. Um, You may remember that that part uh, of his answer comes from the book of Deuteronomy, one of the most important teachings in all of the Jewish law. The Shema Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. That is one of the key teachings of, of uh, Jewish faith. It comes right out of Deuteronomy. And the second half of it, which is not the part that we focused on um, when we were talking about loving God the Jesus way a few weeks ago, the second part of his answer says, love your neighbor as yourself. Right. And... You may remember, I, I sort of teased this out at the time. If you weren't here that, that day, you might not know where this particular command comes from in the Bible. What book of the Bible that is so lovey-dovey and um, touchy-feely and neighbor-lovey is he quoting from here? <laughs> the book of Leviticus, <laughs> right? Not what you'd expect to find in the book of Leviticus with all its prohibitions about this and that and... Every other little thing. Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. For I am the Lord. It's the law of God. But these two bits of Jewish law set up a beautiful intersection, if you will, of the types of love that are expected of people who follow God. There's both a a vertical love, if you will, that first clause about loving God with everything you have, and there's a horizontal love about loving your neighbors. In another telling of this same story in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus goes on to say that all of the law and all the teaching of the prophets hang on these two commandments, which is another reason why I love Jesus, because he takes 613 laws and a whole canon of uh, prophetic teaching and says, if that's too much, remember these two things. I like two things. I can go to the grocery store and come back with two things. If my phone starts buzzing while I'm there with additional items for my list, My beautiful wife is giving me the (laughs) look right now. (laughs) Then I'm confused. But two things I can do. At least I can remember that I'm supposed to. Whether I actually pull it off is a different story. But imagine if we could just manage to get those two things right. Vertical and horizontal. Love God. Love your neighbor. If we could just do those two things, well, the whole world would change. Imagine how the world would change. But, remember the question the man asked. The man did not ask, Teacher, what must I do to change the world? (laughs) He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which... um, I'm. am not even sure that's a question that we are asking, today. Even in in a church, I'm not sure that's the thing that that really motivates this particular group of people. Right? We focus a lot here, and I think rightfully so. It's a it's a corrective to what we see as excessive emphasis on. Um, the, uh, the sweet by-and-by and, by and other, other kind of church cultural contexts. We focus a lot here on the, on the here and now, on how Jesus' gospel, how the good news of Christ can be brought to bear in our world today, how, how we can make a difference empowered by and instructed by and commanded by Christ in our world right now. We spend a lot of time talking about that, and I wonder if sometimes the pendulum hasn't swung a little too far there, and it's maybe time to, for us to think back in that direction. But even today, having said that, even today eternal life is not the focus of of, um, my sermon. But I do think it would be um, intellectually dishonest of me not to bring that to our attention. I think it would be intellectually dishonest of us not to acknowledge that that's where this conversation begins, with a question about inheriting eternal life. Um, I may be stupid (laughs) sometimes, I may say dumb things, Um, I may make mistakes, but what i promise you I will never do is be intellectually dishonest um, when I'm preaching. And I think if I hadn't at least brought that to our attention, even though it's not where I'm going, that it would have been kind of like lying to you a little bit. And I'm just not willing to do that. Um, So it might be wise to keep it in the back of our minds. Okay, that's sort of the, the, the catalyst for this conversation, question about eternal life. But given that you know the topic for today, which is the walls that we build and how we can get beyond those walls, you may be wondering, how do we get from this story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, this story about mercy and compassion, how do we get from that to the idea that there are cultural walls that are built up between us, that we um, subconsciously and and insidiously are conditioned to, to, to thicken and raise and make harder to break down? How do we get from A to B? To B on that. And maybe it doesn't even seem like A to B, maybe it seems like A to Z. How does that happen? Well, the answer that I would give is that this is not actually a story about mercy and compassion. I mean it's partly that, but I don't think it's primarily a story about mercy and compassion. It's not a story that's primarily about helping people who are hurting. Anyone would agree that you should do that. Any decent human being, religious or not, would agree that you should help people who are hurting. That's not the main purpose of this story, in my opinion. I think this is not a story about mercy and compassion, but it's a story about justice. Justice is more than mercy. It's more than compassion. It's more than just helping. Justice is about exclusivism, it's about race, it's about preserving and celebrating and fighting for the fundamental dignity of every human being, regardless of who they are, where they come from, what they look like, who they love, etc. Justice is about changing the systems that create hurting people so that they don't become hurting people in the first place. Mercy and compassion is awesome. Justice is about fixing the broken system. And I think that that is what this story is about. In the case of this story, it's about religious bigotry and exceptionalism. Let me explain why I say that. Some of you already know where I'm going with this, so bear with me. But uh, for those who may not be intimately familiar with the uh, social and religious structures of the ancient Near East, uh, (laughs) I'm going to fill you in for just a minute here. Let's visit with these characters in the story for a minute. First of all, the, the victim of the crime, the man who was beaten and uh, stripped and left there half dead, um, traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, which is west to east, about 17 miles downhill um, from the hills of Jerusalem where the temple was down to maybe where he lived. It's, I think, deliberately a little bit vague. doesn't say much about him um, except that he's naked and that he's half dead which would probably mean that he would be very difficult to identify, by which I mean it would be hard to tell if he was a Jew or a Gentile. It might even be hard to tell if he was alive. And according to Jewish law, a good Jew cannot touch a dead body. A good Jew cannot have contact with a Gentile person, somebody who's not Jewish. So this person is a risk For a good law-abiding Jewish citizen. Then there's the priest, the first person to approach the man and cross over to the other side. Uh, The priest in the Jewish system was a mediator between God and the people, uh, would serve in the temple by um, officiating the sacrificial system, would also be able to to live and support his family on the tithes. That is the the ten percent given to the temple. So priests tended to be somewhat wealthy. But they had to remain ceremonially and religiously clean in order to perform their duties and continue to take their wages. So touching a dead body, not a good idea, especially if you're on the way to the temple. Maybe he was going the other direction, about to do his work. No dead bodies, no Gentiles, and I can't quite tell who that is, so I'm going to go over here. Then a Levite came by. What's a Levite? A Levite is a member of the tribe of Levi, the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them is Levi. Um, Moses and his brother Aaron were, were Levites. They also served in the temple. By virtue of their birth, they were required to and allowed to serve in the temple. Not, not as high a profile position as a priest, but still expected to keep and observe the, uh, the Jewish laws, particularly uh, the ones about ceremonial cleanness. And then the star of the show, the Samaritan. Uh, Samaritan was neither Jew nor Gentile, kind of the worst place to be ethnically. The, uh, the offspring of exiled Jews and the Gentiles that they were living near. Um, thought of as, if you'll pardon a kind of a coarse expression, half-breeds. And not only ethnically, but, but religiously in limbo. Expected to keep all the Jewish laws because they were Jewish ish <laughs> Right? sorry (laughs) Uh, wow not in my notes (laughs) (laughs) expected to keep all the Jewish laws but not really given the full privileges that came with being Jewish so you have the the beaten man, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan I suppose you have the innkeeper also Um, I, I guess think Less Marriott and more the hobbit, right? The innkeeper is sort of a, like a closer, more personalized contact with the person kind of role. Um, only important because I think as we begin to try to apply this, we ought to need to think of ourselves both as the Samaritan and as the, the innkeeper, the one who offers hospitality. But it's a brilliant thing that Jesus does, he outlaws the lawyer. Don't you love it when, so, when you like watch on TV and the one lawyer thinks he's so smart and then Matlock comes up? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like Grandpa Simpson up here. I want to watch Matlock. <laughs> I love seeing lawyers get outlawed. It's one of my favorite things. Never ask Jesus a follow-up question. It's really that easy. It's like Jack Johnnagy said, never go with a hippie to a second location, right? Don't... Ask, don't ask Jesus a follow-up question. You are asking for trouble. Just let it go. He said you did the right thing. You gave the right answer. Let that be enough. No, he had to ask a follow-up question. But who is my neighbor, teacher? And suddenly Jesus spins this story at him and he's left with an oh crap kind of moment. See, the man wanted to, or at least wanted to act like he wanted to go the extra mile with the law, which for him probably just meant more vertical interaction, more loving God, loving God more exuberantly, and maybe more obvious horizontal interaction. Who is my neighbor? Probably thinking about his actual neighbor, Jim. Like, I could easily love Jim more. What I'll do is I'll ask him, who's my neighbor? And he'll say, because he's like smart, don't you live next to Jim? You have to love Jim more. That's what it means, you dumb dumb. Nope. <laughs> Chuck Testa, that's not what he meant. What Jesus demands is deeper interaction, more face to face love. I like to think of this as a three dimensional love, whereas before you have this uh, vertical and horizontal two dimensional love. What Jesus is Asking and requiring is a Z axis. Where are my math nerds at? Right? Yeah, woot. <laughs> Somebody yell out the binary for woot. Uh, right? Jesus is sort of moving this neighborly interaction from the side to the front. And it's gonna get messy. Because Z axis love is bloody and expensive. And it requires the person who wants to do that kind of love to go beyond their, their interpersonal walls. It requires a Jewish person to interact with a maybe a Gentile person. An injured person who might be dead. That kind of Z-axis love is no respecter of cultural and socioeconomic barriers. Z-axis love is the kind of love that a Samaritan can offer. By the way, have you ever seen that, um, you can find it on YouTube, that little sketch by Mitchell and Webb about the Good Samaritan? It's hilarious. It's very irreverent. I almost played it today, but I decided better of it. Um, you can watch it on YouTube, but basically it's Jesus starting to teach about the Good Samaritan, and they're all like, yes, we get it, Jesus. <laughs> Samaritans can be good. <laughs> sort of accusing him of this um, unflinching acceptance of a cliche, <laughs> is what he says. Anyway, that's not, neither here nor there, but it's funny, so you could go watch it later. <laughs> Z-axis love that's three-dimensional is the kind of love that a Samaritan can offer. And it's the kind of love that, that all of us should offer. It's the kind of love that transcends the boundaries that exist between us. By the way, it's not just Jesus who teaches this kind of thing. It's the Apostle Paul. Also, by the way, not known for like, a whole lot of lovey-dovey, touchy-feely language, right? There's this whole kind of like subconscious thing in Christendom where Jesus is, Jesus is awesome and Paul's a meanie. And it's kind of like good cop, bad cop, Right? <clears throat> Um, but here's just a couple of verses, Galatians three twenty-seven. This is Paul writing the meaning. There is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male or female, male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. All of you are one in Christ Jesus. And yet, even though we don't have the the Jew Gentile problem anymore. Um, it's not really a barrier for most of us, I don't think. We, we, misapply, we just fail to apply this to our own barriers, the, the, the ones that do exist between people groups in our culture today. We think, well, that's fine. You know, we're, Yes, I have no problem with Gentiles. I'm cool with them. <laughs> that's the letter of the law, right That's not the point. Ephesians 2:14. And I, I had to stop myself from putting this whole chapter here because it's so beautiful. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, he's speaking to Gentiles here, and by extension, probably speaking to anybody in the room who might feel isolated by religious practice and custom and culture. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. Peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. This is a spiritual reality. This is a truth that Paul is teaching. Unfortunately, we suck at living it out. Just as Jesus tears down that wall, you're like, whoa, Jesus, those bricks were expensive. I'm going to put them right back where they were. You don't like that wall? I'll make one over here. Yes, fine. Tear down the wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. I will do my best. And I'm going to make one over here between the X and the Y. Pick your thing. kind of bring this all together what i want to do is retell this parable in modern terms this is just one version of how this parable might have been told by jesus today so the victim instead of being a traveler coming from the temple going back to his home in jericho might have might we might think of the victim as a pregnant teenager who's not sure if she's going to keep the baby who has been kicked out of her house by her religious parents and is looking for a place to live with her boyfriend. And so she asks her uncle, who's a pastor at a fairly large and well-known church in the city, if she and her boyfriend can live at his house for a while. And he says, honey, you know I love you, but I can't, I can't do that. What would my board of elders say? And she goes then to the local mission, operated by nice Christian people, and they say, we wish we could help you. But as you're not yet a single mom, we don't have a bed for you. And by the way, your boyfriend we would never have a bed for him anyway. That's not really what we're set up to do here. And so she goes at wit's end to her neighbor's house, a gay couple with a spare bedroom. And you know how this story ends, right? They welcome her and the boyfriend into the house. They say, We have a bed you can sleep in together if you need to. Just one room. You are welcome to anything you can find in the fridge. And we would like you both to eat dinner with us when we sit down to our evening meal tonight, And as long as you're here. Now, if Jesus told the story that way, in our churches. Um, he might have gotten himself into some hot water. <clears throat> that story, as I just told it, is, I, I mean, if you're coming to this room like not really um, knowledgeable about evangelical church culture, having not grown up in it or whatever, that might not have been remotely provocative to you. But for some of us in the room who grew up in a you know, a conservative Christian background, that story would not go over well in a sermon. They would say, that's not what Jesus would say. Don't put words in Jesus' mouth. Haven't you read Leviticus? What's the last thing that Jesus says to the man? Go and do likewise. Let's pray. God, it's my prayer that that your Spirit would challenge us by um, the reading of this text today this famous story which has become so familiar to to many of us. I pray that that it would have new meaning for us um, in our own lives, that it would have new meaning for us as a church, that we would do the very challenging and difficult work of struggling to apply this story. we acknowledge now that absent your Spirit's presence, absent the power of Christ among us, it is just about impossible for us to go and do likewise. And yet we know that you have called us as a church to justice. And part of that is breaking down the dividing walls that are between us. Lord, would you please show us What walls exist between us and our neighbors? Would you please show us how you would want to demolish those walls, how you would want to break them down, and would you chastise us and convict us when we start to put the bricks back together? Strengthen us to do your work to live out your calling, to go and do likewise, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Today, as we come to communion, which we celebrate together every week, I'd like to ask you to to think on one aspect of this sacrament, which is that it is um, the great unifying sacrament of the church. Just as the creation story says that men and women, all people created in God's image, this table being offered to all people who would seek to follow Jesus is the great leveler of the Christian faith. You will come and take communion standing next to somebody um, who is different from you in some way, small or large. I would like you to think as you look to your right or to your left about what walls might be present between you and that other person. And remember that the body and blood of Christ breaks down that wall. Those walls. And as you go back to your seat and you're facing this way and you can look right outside our windows and our doors and see the the neighborhoods that surround this building, I would like you to think about the walls that exist between you, between us and, and them. Which is of course the language we want to try to eradicate, us and them. And I want you to imagine the body and blood of Christ, breaking down that wall between us and our neighbors, that's what Beyond Our Walls is, is about. Because if we can't get through those invisible walls, there's almost no point in going through the physical ones. Let's continue to worship him together, receive communion as the great unifying sacrament of the church. Tables open.